0: welcome to lean back i'm laura and i'm lisa and we are recording today from quarantine with the ongoing covid19 crisis we are both at our homes (laughs) not recording on the same microphone it's it's an interesting time to record a podcast because a lot more people are at home there's a lot of anxiety we all want to know like are we doing the right thing <laughs> i assume this is different from what you normally do you're out and about all the time
1: yeah i had to cancel the first like 4 months of my book tour and i'm not on campus teaching and i'm not giving talks around the state and so it was a really big change really quickly for me. Um, you know, I saw a Meme go around it's like check on your extrovert friends, <laughs> which was <Yeah. I> <laughs> pretty pretty serious for me. But it's been okay. I mean, it's been good to have more time um with the kid and the family. I'm lucky to have a job, right, where I'm compensated and able to work from home. And um, so that's good, but I mean the panic on the internet is real, and the crisis is real, and the death count's going to increase. And it, I feel like it's a very different thing for us to be down here in the mid south than it is to be in a large cosmopolitan, you know, city on the coast. So it feels different here, I think, than it does in other places. I think it feels different here than it does, say, in Modi's India for sure, or in Italy. And so there is some breathing room here, no pun intended, um, that I think will close probably in the next couple of weeks as it gets worse in
0: Arkansas. Yeah, there is. I mean, um, I have been seeing a ton of people outside and walking. I mean, I've walked outside and I think the going concern in New York is you can't even going outside because so many people are infected. The virus load is too high. Like you shouldn't even be leaving. Um, but yeah, I mean, here I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, still going out. are you are you going outside still? Yeah,
1: I'm still going outside. I mean, we live in a place that's um, I don't know, not super high traffic. The park is, but they've been closed, uh, which is good. Uh but it's you know, I think we can still walk around the neighborhoods and not run into anybody, like on the side. Yeah, yeah. So that has been fine and I think good for my sanity.
0: Yeah. Roger and I walked down downtown yesterday and maybe saw one or two people. We saw Hannah Withers <laughs> outside of Maxines, just checking on Maxines. But you know, we spoke for a second eight feet apart, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so And I have, I have seen like from afar, you know, people in their cars and we're waving, you know, you can't catch up with people in person. You've got to be like, I'll call you later.
1: I think it's probably harder for the people who didn't realize it was coming. You know, I feel like six weeks ago or so, I was like, you know, I'm going to get some Pedialyte and some, you know, disinfectant wipes and some Lysol. And everybody's like, are you really concerned about this? And I'm like, yeah, I think it's better to be safe than sorry. I'm not much of a hoarder really, but I was like, I'm going to get some of these things and, you know, and wait, see how it goes. And I think at the time people thought that I was a lunatic, which, you know, is probably par for the course, but.
0: Yeah. I started behaving really healthy. You know, I started exercising more and I stopped drinking entirely. Yeah. (laughs) I started eating really healthy, getting more sleep. I was like, I just better take care of myself, you know?
1: Yeah, I will say that I think a lot of people are so anxious they're not sleeping and I've been sleeping like a log every night for like 8 to 10 hours. So I feel like I'm the most
0: well-rested that I've ever been like as an adult person. That's good. It's important. Yeah. It's good for your immune system and as much as you can lower your stress levels. They're saying like don't get so stressed out cuz that's also not good for you.
1: It's not good for you. So it's like I'm, I I want to tell people like maybe turn off the internet I mean, don't get your head in the sand. You have a responsibility to know, but it doesn't have to be like the 24-hour news cycle either, actually. I think that the hardest thing for me is just the labor of the thing is so gendered, right? So single parents get the shaft here, both financially and with child care. And, you know, in the middle class, it's uh, especially among the heteros, it's like the women who have to manage the... You know, homeschooling stuff and making sure they get their packets done while working full time from home, right? In houses that are not set up for homework, right? Where there's not necessarily a home office and, you know, privacy or time. And you know, while that can make for some charming, you know, bumps along the road, I think probably the most stressful thing is the juggling of the childcare and the labor.
0: Yeah, and making sure that your household is cared for you know women I disproportionately care for their parents you know making sure their parents are cared for picking up the groceries the cooking and also I think women are disproportionately affected by any kind of austerity like and and especially in this situation because I think women um are a greater part of the service workforce. Oh, yeah. So you've got layoffs that are affecting women at a greater rate than men. The manufacturing industry is doing better than expected during this time. Waitresses are faring worse. Not that all servers are women, but I think in larger numbers. The
1: medical field, just watching all the infections in the hospital because the negligence and revolting um, selfishness and greed of this political moment. You know, crises bring out all the looters among the government, right? So crises are a time for them to consolidate wealth and to loot public, you know, funds. And watching that happen at the expense of nurses and healthcare facilities and janitors and You know, the entire medical field is, I think, probably the most disheartening part of it for me actually to watch, because it's like, here are these people who, you know, are sacrificing their 15 hours a day with no help from the federal government, who is withholding, you know, medical technology and goods that they need to keep themselves safe and to to do their work because he's a petty fuck
0: i know like in war our government spares no expense creating the best technologies you know to defend our country and it's shocking to see the lack of resources in this particular crisis when this is a bigger threat i think in a lot of ways to our country than quote-unquote terrorism
1: (laughs) i don't know it's a form of terrorism, yeah. though. That's the thing. Everybody is not sleeping and is anxious because it is a form of in- internal terrorism. It's anti-black and brown. It's it's going to ravage the prisons and these horrible concentration camps full of children. The immigrants and refugees are going to just be absolutely, you know, disproportionately affected. And then there's this medical apartheid that's both like anti-intellectual in that it's anti-doctor, right? Anti-medical professional, anti-professional. And it's withholding um, information and technology and tools from the states that, you know, don't necessarily politically support Trump. And so it's a it's a form of medical apartheid that we're watching happen. And it's not new. Right. So like the eugenics impulse in the U.S. is is foundational to American exceptionalism. It's always been here. The drive to kill others is like a fundamental part of the American way of life. And it's always been anti-Black. And certainly anti-Native American. But uh, it's really, I think, hard to watch the medical apartheid in the way it's just going to kill so many
0: people. I'm like, where did the president get this much power? Is he really the decision maker behind which states can get ventilators and how many? And can he really make decisions like that with such a partisan (laughs) impetus? I mean... I he don't. Can't. I mean, it's probably the But how do we? Get he didn't hire system. people,
1: Laura. Like half of the federal government remains unstaffed. If it was staffed when he got there, and then a bunch of them he let go, like the pandemic response team. So it has been a willful scaling back of the federal government as a way of increasing the unilateral power of the executive branch aided and abetted by the Senate and Mitch McConnell. So yes, it was totally intentional. Was it always this way? Not exactly. Are there moments where it's been more imperial presidency and and less democratic than this? No, this is literally the worst presidency of all time. There's no doubt about it among the political scientists and historians. And and it is an unprecedented uh, power grab for the executive branch.
0: I mean, you just can't have someone in power who won't let people around them with dissenting opinions you know or with someone who's people who publicly disagree with him not if you're actually invested in democracy you can't and the people who disagree they just stepped like james mattis people can't stand him because he won't let them make the right decisions for the country even if they're more qualified than him. especially if they're more qualified
1: yeah i mean it's such a hyper masculine moment it is such a hypermasculine moment. Uh, there's just it's so white, it's so male, it's so punitive, and it's just absolutely going to decimate <laughs> everything. Uh, the thing that I find so ridiculous is this idea that somehow the economy is going to bounce back. Or, I mean, you're killing off the workforce. What are you, what are you talking about? It's so short-sighted. It's so American.
0: Yeah, and I mean, also, a lot of assumptions about how the economy worked were dismantled. You know, it was a house of cards built on underpaid labor for a long time. Like, even a small breeze would have blown over the house of cards, but this is a fucking tornado. The stock market was built on the assumption that growth could continue unfettered, you know, and obviously... That's not a realistic. Yeah. Assumption. Also
1: speculation is bad, but um, yeah. you know, it's interesting because watching this moment while there's a viable presidential candidate who, whose entire life has been built around Medicare for all puts this really stark contrast on the framing of what is a good leader, who is a good leader. So, you know, for me, it's like two things really, really kind of undermine my faith <clears throat> in any kind of positive future. And y'all know that I'm not an optimist politically, but um, you know, one is the medical apartheid and the other is Joe Biden. (laughs) I just, and watching all of this stuff come out about uh, me too. And, you know, his being handsy and maybe rapey, which I mean, look, I don't care if those are Russian bots circulating those stories. It is very hard for me To think of Joe Biden as not an ass grabber. And so that has more fidelity to me than anything else that comes out of his mouth that could even be proximate to progressive politics. You know what I'm saying?
0: I I see a lot of frustration with people on the left, frustrated that Bernie is still in the race. But I'm like, I mean, even if it's a lie, he's got to pull, he's got to get Biden to make some promises you know, especially now, about some kind of social support, even if it's not authentic, even if Biden didn't stand for it. And even though I very much and many other people very much wish that the candidate that was leading the race was an authentic champion of those beliefs. He's got to stay in to get some fucking promises that he can't renege on. Like, I mean, it's interesting
1: because I was like, he should drop out. I'm like, we don't have three parties. There's no opposition party in the United States. So Bernie is like a one man opposition party and you can like it or you can not like it. But the only reason that there were any provisions in that fucking bailout bill is because the left has been screaming for the last, you know, six years plus for more concessions for the working class and working poor. And that's not like that should not surprise anybody that basically Bernie and some white ladies behind Elizabeth Warren, you know, have created a different kind of political climate than one that existed in 08 with the election of Barack Obama. So I don't know. I also think that there is this dynastic cycle that I hate in the Democratic Party And it's the Kennedys, and it's the Clintons, and I just cannot with it. I'm like, get the fuck out of the way. And so listening to Joe Biden just recycle the same fucking talking points for the last 12 years, it's just so revolting to me because I'm like, you have no ideas. You have no base. You did no campaigning. You know, nobody rides for Joe Biden, you know go back to heart island and retire whatever it is that you i mean he should have a seat and and it's and it's just it's just so that part is disheartening and is also not surprising (laughs) you know that
0: that's yeah he's just trying to like reassemble the obama coalition but it's like he doesn't have all the pieces that is the most generous read (laughs) Yeah, it's really disappointing. And also, you know, I just w- say what you will about you know his possible dementia, but even if he is at full at full health um, and capacity, I I don't know if he has this no know, just, or the vigor. He's just <laughs> mediocre. They,
1: they picked him because he was a mediocre kind of white supremacist guy who was going to keep keep a senior eye on the new black dude on the scene. And he has none of the chops. I mean, even even if you give the pundits credit, and I wouldn't, but even if you did, the only thing nice they can say about him is that he knows about foreign policy. Well, fuck, unhelpful at the moment. All of the other foreign leaders have the COVID, so they're out of commission.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. It... He is trying to capitalize on this moment. I mean, coming after Trump is important. I think his most recent campaign ads are just direct critiques of Trump's incompetence at handling this and evil. (laughs) It's evil to withhold supplies.
1: Yeah, it's 100% evil. You know, and I'm just, I'm thinking about folks who are locked away in their houses and they've just got their internet, right? And so they're watching the the news just unfold day after day and it's going to get so much worse. And I just, there is something about... Living through a cultural trauma like this and a global one, that it's very different. I think it's and harder, especially for the non-historians. Maybe the historians, at least, they're like, "Oh yeah, history is recursive. These things ebb and flow. They reappear. It looks this way." You know, they've been shouting on Twitter for years now about, you know, what neo-fascism and what an authoritarian America looked like and how, you know, Trump was sowing the seeds of that very early on. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just, I don't think that the world was prepared for this. The U.S. is certainly not prepared. And I think on, a, on an individual level, people are not emotionally prepared for what this is going to feel like in the long run. So I don't mean like in the next six weeks as different parts of the country start to feel the peak. I mean, in the next year and a half before there's a vaccine, you know,
0: it's interesting to like think about how our economy has like structured uh, news and access to information and how that doesn't work well when things Like this happened, the news is so distributed and depending on where you get your news, the information that you see could be wildly different from what someone else sees. If you're getting a lot of information from Facebook, your feed is customized to show you information that fits your worldview. And in in some cases you only know what's going on with the coronavirus if it's happening to someone in your network. And uh, given the predicted spread, It will happen to someone in everyone's network. Um, But it's a big problem when you need reliable information, like in a situation where having the correct information could be paramount to your health and safety and the health and safety of those around you. I still hear my colleagues saying it's just like the flu. I don't know. You need some kind of authoritative source that says take this seriously. And that needs to happen before you have a friend or a friend of a friend or a family member that. Is impacted directly. You know, we were talking earlier like, is it okay to go outside of Walker or not? Like, who do I trust to tell me that? And how do I know I should take it seriously? Oh, yeah. No, there's no
1: coordinated messaging. There's coordinated disinformation, though.
0: I will say, like, um, Fox News did get rid of Trish Reagan, uh, the correspondent who was saying coronavirus is a scam all of the men's Hannity and the rest of them have said that shit
1: for weeks and then takes the girl and they fired her. So, I mean, yes, that happened, but you know, it's part of what you were saying about austerity disproportionately affecting women, even the bad women, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, they just were pretending, like feigning accountability, but
1: I don't know this thing where the, the Republican States are not allowing newspaper coverage of, governor's press conferences or not giving them access to the state health department results of covid tests and then you know and then the states being like we're not going to cover trump press conferences slash rallies i mean it is so broken and it took literally barely anything to break it And it really should give people pause. So this whole centrist like back to normal, back to 2008 stuff is just it just pisses me off so much because it's like we don't need to go backwards. We need to move forward. This is an entire massive jolt to the political system, like take it seriously and shove it to the left, because if you go to the center, it's just going to go further right. And I just I, I just don't it's so exhausting to watch the same fucking play fail time and time again you know
0: yeah it's um it's not a good sign for the stability of government no. institutions either like <laughs> there's a huge distrust of the government and there was before and you know as the incompetence around this grows or the distrust around governments that are making a real effort Uh, at curbing this disease it's but it's a it's an american thing right to not trust the government like you have to rely on yourself that's the whole deal like you earn your living uh too bad the government doesn't provide sufficient educational opportunities for you to have the skills to succeed in the modern economy but you need to build your own life anyway um you, learn, you earn your own living without help from anyone other than your parents, really. Um, and you build a gate around what's yours. And you have a gun that can shoot anyone who threatens your property. Um, so we don't trust the government to provide anything for us. Like I was saying online the other day, like, we don't really trust FEMA to come with the toilet paper or the National Guard. <laughs> you know, we just have to take care of ourselves and our own. And compete with everyone else for the resources that we need. You know, like, and I just can't imagine us switching to something like rationing. Like, after years of consumer excess. Like, I don't see a lot of people handling that or allowing the government. Trusting the government.
1: Yeah, I no, rationing is not in the future. In in a social socialist way. But, um, yeah, I, the Puritan legacy is a bad one. I think completely like start to finish the, I think also the the thing about that is watching the evangelical you around Medicare for all and around like democratic institutions. And I think that that part has been mystified. The public doesn't understand why Trump seems irrational. And it's not that he's irrational. He, He is, this is not a persuasive moment. So he has just turned over all of the ideology to the evangelicals and they're all premillennial dispensationalists. They think the end times are coming. They're preparing for them. They're hoarding their masks and their guns and their food and shit. So this all fits their worldview. They're like, they are bringing it into being. They're calling it into being this hyper-competitive Hunger Games thing because they think it's the end of the world and they're going to get saved. So that's like a non-negligible feature of Trumpism and it's the, it's the why 40% of the white Americans support him. It's because he's going to help usher in, you know, the end times. That's like an essential part <laughs> of the political moment that the non-evangelicals can't or won't see, right, about why he has such a loyal following. It'll be very interesting to see what happens is the churches continue to congregate and then everybody in the churches gets sick. Like we had that church in Hebrew Springs here in Arkansas, right? Where like 50 people, they went to a children's revival and then they all got COVID and a bunch of them, all of the the 50 that were there like tested positive. And that's going to happen in huge numbers in places like Mississippi, which is going to pray COVID away and other death wish poor Southern Republican states texas it'll be very interesting to see what happens outside of the big cities in texas because it's going to just going to spread like i mean like wildfire really
0: it's um irresponsible for anyone to tell people to pray the disease away but that's kind of the kind of misinformation that's been happening for years it's a, another mechanism of control i mean i what i really hope happens here is that people start interrogating you know uh i hope this gives people some more time to reflect you know about labor and about our culture like do we really want to live in a culture where everything falls apart if everyone stops working for a week our economy is entirely predicated on you know that certain people work through anything like people who don't make a living wage and don't have health insurance and don't get paid vacation are always working.
1: I mean, I will say Um, one of the things that I like about living in Fayetteville and I think maybe other college towns are like this, but I don't know is that there is sort of a mutual aid culture around the service industry and the college that I think other places don't have both because the educational level and because of the reciprocity between, you know, those two forms of labor. And I think that it builds a different kind of social intimacy in town that doesn't get replicated in smaller towns or in places that don't have, you know, universities that are anchoring, you know, the town's identity. And that, that makes me optimistic about yeah. Fayetteville in a way that is not generalizable across the country, though. You know, that's extremely middle class. It's very pro-intellectual. It's pro-union. It's it's very much about a different kind of care model. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely see the most community around this and leadership from people in the service industry, business owners in particular in the service industry. Um, I think a part of that is though, like they rely on the public and part of their business model is creating community, um, a place where people enjoy coming um, so that they'll spend money. So like bar and restaurant owners. And I do think they're doing a lot of mutual aid right now, which is tremendous. Um and it's not that they have a real choice in their business model like we're in a university town the university um, doesn't pay great wages for most of their staff um, and even faculty and there's like no way to pay restaurant employees well so their businesses rely on workers that are fundamentally low wage because otherwise they wouldn't be able to sustain their business and they can't raise prices enough or no one would be able to come so you do have to you know when times are good your employees are barely making it (laughs) but you can't I mean there's not a lot of choice in that and then when times are bad you gotta take care of them (laughs) because it is a really precarious situation I am happy to see that that care taking is happening and you know there's a lot of positivity around closing the businesses as a public health issue you know like we're doing the right thing we're going to save people's lives and like businesses closing voluntarily before the state even mandated it Think, saying like you know we're trying to keep our employees safe and the public <laughs> safe. I saw that Mayor Jordan, our uh, Fayetteville's mayor, had to close down the parks. When I was out last weekend, I guess, I saw people letting their kids play on playgrounds, you know, and it's just, I can't believe we had to get to the point where he had to rope off playgrounds to get people to...
1: Yeah, I totally can decisions. believe that we had to get there. I could not believe how many people were at the park. Um, but... I don't know, it'll be very interesting, I think, to see how this political moment reshapes intimacy, because obviously we're quarantining here and self-isolating as a matter of, you know, I don't know, imperative as an imperative matter, but... For single people, I think this is going to be very hard. And for people who are partnered but long distance, it's very hard. And for people whose families are in different parts of the world, it's very hard. And, you know, I'm glad everybody's having quarantine happy hours on the Skype. But, um, you know, it's going to be I'm, I'll am i be very curious to see how this maybe prompts people to think differently about how they arrange their time and their affective labor um in the communities of practice that they feel most drawn to and also about how they feel about mutual aid and what it means to sacrifice for the greater good and so as you know I like your call for reflection because I think this is a time to reimagine about what our time and care looks like I think you know there have been a bunch of stories some of them fake news and some not about the environment improving as everybody's staying home And so, you know, if there's any silver lining, I hope to God it's environmental. You know, I hope that there is an environmental upside that people can, I don't know, integrate into their lives and their lifestyles and their careers and their professions and their families. And, you know, and they can think differently about the earth, perhaps in a different way. Now, am I optimistic about it? No, because they want to consume. But This is going to be such a devastating large scale event that while it's not going to approach mass extinction, at least gives us a very different view about mass death that I think could perhaps reorient intimacy and consumption if there was enough will and if there was enough leadership to do so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it will reorient our impression of care and care as a practice, as um, in some cases labor. And that was missing, I think, you know. Yeah, I think it was
1: missing before. But I think the thing that hampers it is just like this patchwork quilt of rights that the U.S. has decided to continue to take where different states have different laws and different states have different rules and different states have different rights. And I think that makes it really hard to imagine um, different relationality across the country as a matter of national priority, because there's nobody with the exception of Bernie who's consistent on the messaging. And, you know, there are reasons why some of them good and some of them really very ridiculous that people don't want to support his vision, but, I mean, the fact that the boomers have basically locked out Gen X for the last 20 years, the pipeline is pretty frozen. And so even the young people, you know, in the house who are leading uh, the Ocasio-Cortezes and what have you, they are they are so junior that they don't have the institutional memory or knowledge. Um, and so, you know, it will be very interesting to see what leadership looks like and what it means to translate leadership to a population that's going to be so disproportionately affected by the virus. And, you know, it could go the other way, I suppose. It might not matter if you're a blue state or red state. You know, the virus is going to roll through, steamroll the country, regardless, right, of the political persuasion of who's in the governor's mansion. But I think it will have probably a profound impact on how the messaging around Trumpism rolls into the 2020 election. And so... I don't know I think that for for, I think this is a very hard time to be an anxious person I am not an anxious person but I I feel for the anxious folks because I imagine that the uncertainty is just really debilitating at the moment and I think that that's very hard as a feature of this kind of global trauma you know